For this bonus interview episode, I chat with Canadian media composer Maria Molinari. Trained as a classical guitarist, Maria began her composing career writing concert music for soloists, chamber groups, ballet, and orchestras, until her love for film, storytelling, and collaboration drew her to film scoring. Maria recently composed the score for the bold, critically acclaimed anthology film To the New Girl. Her music can be heard in the score for the feature film End of Days Inc. and the theme for the forensic series Motives and Murders Cracking the Case. She has provided additional music for the Marvel Comics-based sci-fi syndicated series Mutant X and the retro musical comedy series Getting Along Famously. Enjoy. Well, thanks for joining me, Maria. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're most welcome. So let's jump right in and we'll sort of start um, I guess at the pseudo beginnings um, of your career. Now, I was reading on your website that uh, you were originally trained as a classical guitarist, um, but you were always sort of drawn to film and storytelling, really with a love for these soaring themes of John Williams and haunting harmonies of Thomas Newman. Mm-hmm. So given that, Tell me about your musical journey to becoming a media composer. Okay. Well, when I was at, at, I was at the University of Toronto doing a, a theory degree, and I developed a, a, a serious hand injury, which um, turned out to be a really good thing for me because it, it forced me to consider another, another avenue if I wanted to stay in the musical field. I wasn't a performer. I had no... Um, no inclination toward being a performer. It would kind of be the definition of hell on earth for me to give me a performance (laughs) career. So I I knew I had to, I always knew I had to find a different avenue. And since I'd always been interested in composition, I thought, well, here's my shot. Um, Here's my, you know, the fire under me to really try and figure out if I had any kind of talent. So I spent the summer going to the music faculty of music library every day and listening to something new and then going into the bowels of the faculty and trying to write <laughs> something. And I managed to squeak out a few pieces and managed to get into the composition department there. And after that, I, you know, I, I think like a lot of composers, I felt like a bit of a fraud. So I finished my degree and I felt like I really didn't know much. And I went off to the conservatory and studied. Now, why you say fraud? So why did you, why did you feel fraudulent? Well, at the end of the degree, you know, you, you learn so much of this and that and the other thing. And what you realize the most, I think, is how little, you know, Mm. and opening up a score by Prokofiev and not being able to understand what he was doing harmonically was immensely frustrating for me. And uh, so much in in the just basic theory, like I I would get the Persichetti book, which is a a really, I don't know if you know the the Vince Persichetti theory book, but it's an incredibly dense uh, book full of all kinds of harmonic uh, 20th century techniques. And I made my way through the modal section and wrote a piece in that one, you know, the modal chapter, but it's really heavy. And I just recently started looking at it again. And I thought, wow, there's so much here that I didn't understand then that I think maybe I could start to understand now. So I felt really uh, like I lacked a foundation. Uh, so much of, of theory at the early stages, and rightfully so, is based around 
what will Bach do? Hmm. Which is great because you need to know, you need to start somewhere where there are some very clear rules. And then once you know the rules, you can go about breaking them and you can explore how they've evolved into 20th century music. Um, but at the time I hadn't gotten there. So I ended up going to the conservatory, the conservatory and studied with Sasha Rappaport, who had been my instructor at the U of T <laughs> and, and said to him, you know, I, I need you to build me from the ground up again. I really need that. So I spent some years there with him studying and writing vocal music, which I really enjoyed because it was wonderful to have the structure of a poem and um, and a text is, is just wonderful. And then after that, I ended up at USC. I already started investigating music schools because I knew I wanted to get into film scoring. My music was always very, what, what you might call conservative and not compared to what was being considered serious or fashionable in the concert music world. So I felt really comfortable with the idea of writing for media and I investigated the schools and I read on the track, which is this big, thick tome, which I don't even know if it's in print anymore, which uh, had wonderful uh, examples and, and discussions of film music in it. And so I went to... And, and, yeah. and just so people sure. understand, when you use that word media, what, yes. are, you, what are you referring to? It, it used to be called writing for film and TV. Now it's gotten broader and people refer to writing for media or writing for the screen. So that encompasses everything that encompasses video games, uh, commercials, mixed media, film, TV, um, video on demand, mm -hmm. everything, mm -hmm. everything like that. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So I went to USC and, and that was, you know, my training and, and things just progressed and developed from there. Now, uh, I've seen your setup because I, I, well, you know, I took lessons. Well, I continue to take lessons with Sasha, but I also took uh, theory lessons with you. Thank mm -hmm. you very much. Um, <laughs> it was fun and, and grueling at the time. Um, and I've seen, I, I don't know if your setup has changed, but I remember a lot of hard drives, you know, the keyboard. Um, so a lot of times, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are working with your computer uh, as okay. opposed to a full orchestra. Well, because who can afford that? Um, so what... What does that look like? How is that, how is that different? Well, the, the process is in some ways very similar because I, whether you work with live players or not, a filmmaker can't look at a, a written score and envision how, what that's going to sound like and how it's going to fit with their footage. So like it or not, all composers, unless you're John Williams, <laughs> um, have to work with some sort of... Um, set up some sort of MIDI setup where mm -hmm. they can do realize their score electronically. And so uh, you, I know you wanted to know about the process and mm -hmm, how I work mm -hmm. with filmmakers. Um, well, I like to find out what kind of music they like and what their vision is for the score. And I avoid using musical language because uh, instead focusing on emotions, I know that a lot of filmmakers are really uncomfortable when they deal with a composer uh, because they, they always say the same thing as I have no, no musical background or I had some piano lessons back in the day and I don't really know how to communicate. And that's okay. 
um, because there can be a lot of miscommunication when throwing around musical jargon. If you're talking in terms of emotion, that's always very, very helpful and talking about what you like musically. If you have a vision of, of what you've, something you've already heard that you think would be right for your project. Um, sometimes there's a temp score and uh, for your listeners, a temp score is a temporary score. So they might draw music from their, um, from their library and just plug it in as temporary music as a guide track for the composer. So I usually, you know, I'll get the project. Hopefully it's, it's locked, meaning there isn't any more editing going on. And uh, we sit down at a spotting session, which is where I watch the film with the director and make notes on where they believe they want music to come in and come out and what they want the music to, uh, to do for their project or the scene. And then, you know, all the, all the admin work has to take place where I make a cue list to see what themes are needed, where they can be reused, how they need to maybe develop in the arc of the project, as well as to get a schedule of how, many, how much music needs to be composed per day, roughly. If I'm working with a, a collaborator, which I do sometimes, at this point I'm deciding what cues are going to go to the other person. And sometimes if there is no guide track, I'll put some pre-existing music up against scenes. It might be something I've written. It might be something that I wouldn't have normally written just to see what the project can handle and to provide myself with different perspectives. Because sometimes you can surprise yourself. You put something up and you go, oh, well, that could work. Because there, there are actually many, many different ways to express an emotion. It doesn't have to be just an orchestral score. It can be many different things. And it's important to keep an open mind. So this is really helpful when the, when the filmmakers haven't really, don't have a tamp or don't really know what they want to do. They've, they've, had, they've given me very little input. And during this time, thematic material will usually start to germinate. And I eventually will start sending ideas, themes, sometimes a scene that I've scored to picture for some feedback. And once everyone is in agreement with the direction, we're up and running. Cues are regularly submitted uh, for approval and feedback until the project is, is finished. And if the, if the budget allows, I might have the odd live player. Um, and if not, it's just straight off to the mix and the delivery of the score. And that was actually going to be a question of mine, is how often are you writing literally a score and then that is going off to be recorded live versus mm -hmm. everything being programmed into a computer? Right. Well, it's always programmed into the computer just because the director needs to hear it. Um, it, de it depends upon the nature of the, of the project. I've done a commercial where I had 22 uh, players because the budget was there, you know, mm -hmm. the client, they, they're willing to invest. Um, and then I've done a feature film where it was entirely electronic because the, the, the budget just wasn't there. It was a wonderful film, but there was no money. It was really micro, micro, micro budget. So it really, you know, it depends upon the budget. It's, it's, you know, pretty evenly split where it ends up going. And then, you know, there are the middle, then there's the middle ground where you can mostly afford just electronic, but you might bring in one player, which I've done. And that's, uh, that's wonderful. That always, it, it takes the ear away from the electronic. And mind you, the electronics are, are 
better and better and better. The sample libraries out there are so good compared to what I was dealing with when I first came into the industry. And you know what? I was going to ask you that very question as well, um, mm-hmm. because I remember many moons ago, um, things didn't sound like a real player playing. Yeah. How how far have we gotten and how much do you have to manipulate the sound so that it, in certain cases, does sound as though it's recorded with re- real musicians? Right. Uh, it's a lot of work. And in some ways, I think some composers would argue that it, 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 you know, the budget should be a lot, a lot bigger because even though you're not, you don't, you're not paying for live players, you're actually all the live players now. So you have to program. And luckily there are, you know, YouTube is amazing. There's so much information out there now about how to program things and how to make them more realistic. I don't think anything ever replaces having live players, the expression, all the nuances, you know, they can only capture so much in these libraries. They're doing a fantastic job. It's really amazing how sophisticated they are, but it does take a lot of, uh, you know, you don't just sit there and plonk out the notes. You really have to massage things with, um, with uh, uh, CC information, controller information with expression and, and mod wheel and all of that stuff. And, you know, anyone who's interested can certainly find lots of videos <laughs> out there on what that all means. I won't, I, won't bore you. I won't bore you with a technical discussion of all of that. <laughs> Okay, well, you've given me a few pieces that we can play throughout the program. And seeing as yeah. you you have been talking about, um, well, ads, but also motion picture type stuff, uh, you gave me a clip uh, from Quite the Ranger from uh, To the New Girl. Do you want to mm-hmm. introduce that? Yeah, Quite the Ranger is um, is one. To the New Girl is, is this film that I did recently, which is really close to my heart. It's basically a series of 10 monologues. It was originally a stage play. And it's 10 women writing, reading letters that they've written to their ex's new significant other. And this particular one uh, was written for a monologue where this young woman is talking about how she's pregnant and she's talking about how um, her significant other, who she thought had turned a corner, um, has actually it went off and actually picked up a girl at their at the um, the baby shower that was held for him by his friends that she was not invited to and she calls it quite she she says i i hear that it was quite the rager you know it, it was quite the party and he picked her up at uh what was he picked uh, this woman up at what she calls the conception reception <laughs> and, that's it, they, and it's, it's, ab- it's absolutely brilliant and the producer um was uh said to me i i'd like to really go film noir here so that was the direction I was given. And, uh, and I went kind of jazzy when she starts talking about the, you know, the uptempo. I, it's kind of, it follows her monologue. And I, I had to be very careful because with monologues, you really can't have too much in the way of a big musical moment. So luckily it sat nicely under her monologue, uh, but that's a big consideration. So anyway, I've, I've talked a lot. That's what the film is about. It's wonderful. It's on Amazon Prime and, uh, and Vimeo On Demand and all kinds of. Wonderful. Streaming. Let's take a listen. 
Okay. So again, you mentioned on your website that um, some of your strongest influences have been the likes of Prokofiev, Debussy, Stravinsky, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, um, Mm -hmm. and and the like. Uh, I'd like to know how the folks that have influenced you um, have well, influenced your art, your music, but then also address the fact that in the field that you are in, you really have to be multifaceted in terms of the different genres that you can express. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It's a really interesting thing. Um, Breadth is, is expected. I, I've also heard, though, and I and I support this this philosophy that you need to kind of know where your strengths are. Uh, you can't be everything to everybody. It just it just can't be. Um, even with the last, uh, you know, the the piece that we just heard, uh, I was playing outside of my of my real comfort zone. I'm not a jazz trained musician. Um, it just happens to be a genre that I love. And I think that that's really kind of the line. If you are asked to do something that maybe is outside your wheelhouse a little bit, but you respect the genre and maybe you love the genre, then I think you have a chance of being able to learn it and perhaps express it in a way that is your own, and but at the same time, authentic and respectful to the genre. But if you're asked to do something that is just really outside of your area of interest and skill set, I think it's really important to know that and to either pass the gig on to a colleague who, who is strong in that arena, or if it's the kind of score that perhaps uh, requires a patchwork of different genres, know when to pull in other people to do mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. to help you with that. Um as far as the influences, I think it's I think it's conscious and subconscious as well. You know, there's conscious incorporation of what people, what the composers that you really love do. Um, you know, Stravinsky has been known to say, "A good composer borrows, a great composer steals." Mm. And and I think mm. I think what he meant is that there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Right. That there's so much masterful repertoire out there to learn from. So sometimes the influence is quite literal in that it comes about by studying a score in depth to understand, for example, how someone like Stravinsky might use rhythm or polytonality. You know, I remember studying his symphony in three movements mm-hmm. when I was working on my, on my pieces for violin and piano uh, to understand how he was using it. Um, or you might study Debussy and how he uses modes and pentatonic scales Ravel's G major concerto for me was a really great teacher, his second movement on how to gracefully allied one phrase into another when trading a long melody off from one woodwind to another. And that shows up in my music all the time. Um, At the same time, um, there's also a more visceral manifestation of these, uh, of these influences. You know, when you're drawn to a particular composer, I think, it's uh, you. It kind of come. It becomes a part of you, mm-hmm. and it might come out in ways that you're not even aware. But someone else might say, "Oh, you know, mm-hmm. that reminds me of uh, this composer or that composer." 
Um, and so it'll manifest itself, you know, through the textures that I might choose, the sonorities that I'm drawn to, the harmony that I find appealing, the way I develop my material. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I find for myself that when I'm thinking of doing something, I, I will go back to actually typically Prokofiev, Debussy, and Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how the subconscious works because you're not looking to copy um, or steal, but you're looking at those intricacies and then suddenly something sparks. Um, my question to you is, what do you do when you get stuck? Do you go, mm. do you go back to those folks and kind of reignite? Yeah. How do you get over those hurdles? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I do a lot of listening and sometimes I just force myself to mm-hmm. write anything. It's interesting. I was reading an interview with John Williams and he was asked the same thing. And it, it seems that he just writes every day. He forces mm-hmm. himself. He said, some days are good. Some days are bad. Uh, but it keeps that, that muscle working. So that's what I do. You know, I'll listen to something. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear a chord progression. I'll take that chord progression and I'll start to just improvise something over top in the hopes that something will come up. And sometimes what you come up with is just total rubbish. And, you know, you, but you tried. You can, you can walk away that day saying, well, at least I, I gave it a shot. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's a happy accident. It mm-hmm. could even be while you're mm-hmm. practicing something and you make a mistake and you go, Hey, now that Ooh, is an interesting, sen- yeah, yeah, that's yeah, an yeah, interesting yeah. sonority. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's great. And it's yeah. something that you wouldn't normally do. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you kind of run with that a little bit. Yeah. But also it's interesting because again, the power of the subconscious, because even if you have a bad day mm-hmm. and you spit something out, you walk away from it and your subconscious is noodling away. And then yes. you come back to it the next day and you go, oh, okay, I get yeah. it now. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, and do you ever like wake up in the middle of the night and there it is. It yeah. just won't leave you alone. It just stays yeah. in your head. Over and, and over. Cycling yes. over and over and yeah. over. And yeah. That's when I know that I have to finish it. I remember having a melody that plagued me for years. And when I finally got it down (laughs) and had it performed and recorded, it finally went away. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting. The subconscious, the way it works, it's really interesting. So let's, let's switch gears. Let's play Mm -hmm. another one of your pieces. I think um, I will say it feels diametrically opposed to what we just played. And that's the Danza. Mm -hmm. And you'll have to give me the full, title because I don't want to mispronounce it. It is it is from Trepezi per violino e pianoforte. There Two we pieces go. for violin. See and, you and you, you have the uh, Italian background. <laughs> I don't. Um this is an am- amazing piece. I really jive with this piece. Um yeah please introduce it. Okay, I, I wrote it many years ago. Um, it was actually written as I, I thought it was an exercise that I really needed to go through. It was written, um, I, I thought any self-respecting um, composer should certainly have a piece pieces for a sonata for violin and piano. So I, I got to work on that because I thought it was an essential rite of passage, especially since I'm neither a pianist nor a violinist. 
And um, the work uh, during the time that I was studying, that I was writing this work, I was studying Stravinsky, his Symphony for Three Movements, and uh, Prokofiev, you know, his, his ballets and his sonata for violin and piano for ideas and, and technical guidance on, on how to write for these two instruments. The work was eventually premiered by Moshe Hammer. And through the years, it's been championed by several performers, especially the first movement dance. that seems to be the one that uh, that is the most popular. And I thought it was really aptly characterized by one violinist when she called it serpentine cabaret. Ooh, yes. I like that. I like that a lot. I thought that was really, really, really great. So it's I'm just you know really gratified that the work continues um, to be performed, especially since it just came from a pure artistic expression with absolutely no agenda other than personal growth. So it's it's gratifying that it has resonated with so many performers. And, Sometimes and the best way to go, right? Under no constraints at all. That's right. No expectations. Yeah. Okay. Right. Hold on to your seats, everyone. I know from knowing you personally as well that you are um, very much an advocate for both women composers uh, and women in film. Uh, tell me about that, because of course, um, well, I would say from the film industry, it is still very male dominated. And of course, we think of compositional history um, and composers, and uh, mainly we think of men. So what, mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts? Well, it, it's interesting. When I read your question that you sent to me, I thought, well, I better do some research here. So I have some statistics. 
Michelle is very dry. No one likes <laughs> statistics, but let's start with a quick statistic. And, nice. and this is from the Motion Pictures Association, uh, their 2019 theme report, which is a statistical report on the entertainment industry. And they, they found that in 2019, 50% of moviegoers were women. Uh, of the top 100 grossing films, only 10.7% were directed by women. Of the top 100 grossing films, I have no idea what the female composers were. They went to the top 500, so I assume that there probably wasn't any female presence in the top 100 grossing. But the top 500 grossing films of 2019, only 7% of composers were women. Wow. And that was a vast improvement from 1% to 3% for the previous five years. Wow. Yeah. Now, if we go back to the fact that women are 50% of the audience, mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that we want our perspective represented, whether it's through the direction, through a female eye, whether it's a story that's female-centric, a story that's written, female characters written by women who really understand what, what they're talking about, actors as well who are, who are women, composers who are women, um, an entertainment business that releases programming uh, primarily from the, the white male cisgendered perspective mm -hmm. simply does not accurately represent the demographics and the stories of the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need diversity. That's, that's the first thing. Additionally, I think there's been a real lack of awareness and denial that there's even a problem in the industry. Mm. It's been very industry-wide. And uh, female composers are very underrepresented. The, you know, the cliches that we've heard is that women simply haven't been wanting that career or that they aren't competitive enough or talented enough. You know, none of this is true. Women composers are finally beginning to speak out about their experiences after decades of being kept silent uh, for fear of being blackballed or labeled as bitter or a problem and not working. I think we owe a debt of thanks to the Me Too movement for this mm. that has encouraged women to raise their voices and share their experiences. Uh, you know, you only need to Google female film composers now to find a plethora of articles detailing the struggles of cracking through the industry glass ceiling. Um, women have been kept out through very insidious tactics, bullying, harassment, being underpaid compared to male counterparts, being denied the opportunity to audition for better projects, being told that women aren't as talented or capable or versatile. I think it's really important that the women coming up now realize that at the core of this behavior is insecurity on the part of the men. As long as men, women are being kept out of the field, even the most mediocre male can thrive, right? But open the door, uh, to women and the mediocre males kind of start to get pushed out. And no one gives up power willingly. I think we have to understand that. If, if there is a group that is powerful, they're enjoying that power and no one wants to share power. We see that, that's been proven historically. So I think it's important that women not internalize um, the insidious ways in which they're being kept out and realize that uh, they, have, they have something to share. They are valued contributors in this industry. And, and the good news is that women composers are beginning to receive increased recognition. Uh, Hildur Gudnadotter winning the 2020 Oscar, you know, for Joker and then the Emmy Award. Uh, 
in the same year for Chernobyl. And there are a lot of women-centric industry organizations uh, popping up, increasing in number and becoming more vocal about the problem and lobbying on behalf of women and producing inclusivity reports that hold the industry to account. We have the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, Women in Hollywood, Women in Film. For composers, we have the Alliance for Women Film Composers, uh, which is a wonderful organization. It was founded by Laura Cartman, Miriam Cutler, and Lolita Ritmanis, who are um, seasoned composers in the industry. And the organization offers support, advocacy, networking, industry resources, and even a composer database. So if someone wants, it used to be that people would say, well, where are they? Where are these female composers? Well, guess what? There's a database now. If you're interested, go to the AWFC's database, the Alliance for Women Film Composers, and you can look up women internationally with different skills and and find the right person for your project. I think what's interesting, um, and you mentioned it, is I, I feel it's there's definitely a trickle-down effect. If we get more women producers, more women directors, then as we go down the steps, as it were, they are more inclined to hire more women composers, at least for film and, and TV. Um, and, you know... It, in my other life, uh, I do a lot of film, um, and what I'm seeing is that there are a lot more um, female directors that are that are graduating and are extremely talented mm-hmm. uh, and have a fabulous perspective. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that you know, things will eventually change. But I think that, as you say, there also needs to be advocacy as well. We need to be pushing from both sides. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, uh, I think the more united, instead of seeing each other, women, as competition, I think it's important that we raise ourselves up. Yeah. Um, I think the time of the token female has to end. Um, I think there, there used to be a time where, you know, if it was a boys club and you were the only woman in the room, you were kind of the token. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, what that sometimes spawns is also a feeling of um, other women are your adversaries. They're your competition. There's only room for one of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to keep my spot here and I'm going to protect it. And I think that that's a really great way to keep us as our, keep ourselves as a collective down because we're too busy fighting amongst ourselves mm-hmm. rather than raising each other up as a collective and working together and supporting each other on projects. I think that's that's the way to go. So it has to come from from uh, both directions. You're absolutely right. So I think it's uh, <clears throat> time for our final musical interlude. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, mood-wise, maybe maybe this does fit. I'm not sure uh, because this is entitled loss, but you know, it's we're talking more about gaining. But you know, maybe it fits. It's reflective, so we can take a moment to uh, to reflect on on what we've been talking about. So yes, loss is for string orchestra. Uh, so please uh, uh, introduce. Okay, I, I actually wrote this uh, quite some time ago. It was, a, it was actually a cue that I did down at USC. 
and um, it was recorded there. And this is actually a recording that was done up here in Toronto, but um, it, it was for the Incredible Hulk. The footage was the Incredible <laughs> Hulk, if you can imagine it. And, oh, I, and, and it was the one opportunity <laughs> we had to get a string section in. And, and you know, I think we were all kind of crestfallen by the footage. And I, I so I wrote this cue and and I made it fit. And then I, I had everybody take off their click. And I said, let's just play it down mm. once musically the mm. way we want to play it. And it's just a piece that I've always, that has always kind of been close to my heart. And it seems to resonate with people. So I, yeah, I just, I keep it in my repertoire. Lovely. Okay, take a listen. So as we're starting to wrap things up, um, I think you wanted to to credit a couple of people for one of the pieces. Yes, for Danza, um, I wanted to credit uh, local Toronto musicians. Uh, Corey Gemmel is the violinist and David Swan is the pianist. And it's my favorite recording to date of the piece. I think yeah. they were just, they played it with such fire. Yeah, yeah, they're fabulous. So let's um, let's talk about some of the, the projects that, you know, have been near and dear to your heart to date and mm -hmm. what you've got coming up. Okay, well, I, I think we've kind of uh, talked about the things that were near and dear to my heart. You've actually played all, all the pieces I sent you. So <laughs> I think we, we've, we've got that one wrapped up. Uh, as far as what I've got coming up, I'm currently working on a chamber piece for the um, Scarborough Philharmonic Orchestra. 
It's an interesting piece. The ensemble is a, uh, it's a quartet. It's a string trio plus clarinet. So that's an interesting ensemble. I've mm. never written for that ensemble before. And then I've been also recently um, commissioned by Coro San Marco, um, a Toronto uh, community choir. They've asked me to do a setting of a poem by an Italian-Canadian poet for next year's season. And there's a possible opera as well. We'll see. That's, you know, subject to the old, uh, it's a short opera, but all subject to, you know, the the Arts Council funding. But you you will write the opera. Yes. Woo. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's just a, a group of short five minute operas that are being commissioned. It would be my first foray into that, into that uh, avenue. So that sounds like fun. It, yeah, I think it will be. <laughs> and live, you know, live musicians. So it's, it's, I'm uh, experiencing a renaissance in, in the concert music arena, which is really nice because um, it's, it's great to work with technology, but live people are really, uh, oh, yeah. live musicians are where it's really at. It's yeah, yeah. And thank goodness, mm-hmm. touch wood, post-COVID, things are starting to uh, get rolling again. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know what? I think the final question I have for you, mm-hmm. you know, this has been, I think, a very inspiring chit-chat. We've covered a lot. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, there may be listeners out there who are also maybe studying composition. Maybe they are in that, uh, you know, U of T type program, uh, but they want to go on and they want to work in, uh, in media. Um, you've already given a lot of advice, but is there, is there anything else that you would add words of wisdom wise? How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess the first thing I would say, because there's this wonderful veneer around media music, right? It's all very glossy and sexy and mm-hmm. romantic and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first thing I would say to the to these composers is it's not going to be all about you. If you want to express yourself, write concert music. And I encourage everyone to keep working in those arenas. You know, if you're a songwriter, write some songs, express yourself on a personal level. It's really important because I've seen a lot of colleagues burn out uh, from the rejection and just the general stress of working in media. So keep that other little part of yourself um, alive. Uh, but as far as composing for media, you have to be able to collaborate. You have to be able to take criticism. You have to be able to rewrite the melody that you've fallen in love with, that you think it's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, the reality is that a great piece of music isn't great if it doesn't serve the scene that you're scoring. You'll be likely working for little to no pay in the beginning as you build your relationships and reputation. And be prepared for that whether it means teaching on the side or working as an assistant. And I would urge anyone contemplating this career to work as an assistant. You'll learn a lot about the craft, the business, and whether it's even right for you. Understand that it's a business. There will be a lot of important tasks that are not the fun stuff. I remember being told about 80% of what you'll be doing will not be uh, writing music and being horrified, but it is true. So spend as much time when you're in that education bubble, learning and learning and learning, because you'll need, you'll need all of that. You'll need to be fortified with all of those skills when you go out into the, into the world where your time is going to be split in so many different ways between marketing and promotion and negotiating and, uh, and, 
um, finding the gigs, you know, building relationships, build a network of colleagues that can be a part of your team. This is where school comes in. Keep in touch with your colleagues. The last feature film I got, I got because of a former classmate from USC who sent it, to, sent the the producer in my direction because they wanted a female composer for this female centric project. Uh, the first jobs will come from your classmates if you're going through a media program. Uh, no, I mentioned earlier, know your strengths and know who to call for help when you need it. When you when a project demands skills that you just don't have, and uh, again write every day. And this is something I have to remind myself every day, but keep that muscle going because if you focus only on the business end, you're not going to be ready when an opportunity comes up. So keep working that muscle. And that comes directly from John Williams. So if you're not going to listen to him, who are you going to listen to? (laughs) Sage advice. Um, and also, I, I will put links in the um, in the description. But off mm-hmm. the cuff, where can people find you? Well, I have my website, which is mariamolinari.com. Mm-hmm. And, and also Spotify. Spotify, right? Yeah. Okay. And Spotify as well. Yeah. Wonderful. I encourage people to uh, to look you up. Well, thank you very much for spending a significant portion of your day with me. My absolute pleasure always, Stephen. Thank you for asking. (laughs) All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. I do hope you enjoyed the interview and many thanks again to Maria Molinari for taking the time. If you like my little podcast, The Classical Music Minute, please subscribe and give me a rating on Apple Podcasts. Catch you next time.